Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Elixir Mix. I am joined by our lovely co-host. We have Lars Vickman. Hello. Hey, Lars. We've got Josh Adams. Hey. We've got Alex Kutmas. Howdy, howdy. Welcome, Alex. And today we have a very special guest that I know a lot of us have been very excited about. We are joined by Luke Imhoff, who, as you guys may or may not know, is the creator of IntelliJ Elixir. He's an architecture engineer at Dockyard and one of the co-creators and maintainers of the recently announced Lumen, which I won't give too much away about. Uh, welcome, Luke. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Roxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Roxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. Yeah, super excited that that you could join. Uh, so I know I gave you just a little bit of an introduction, but anything that you want to add for our audience, anything that you'd like to share about yourself? My first program language is TI Basic. I'm not sure if anyone can guess why. Huh. Tell us. Because I, instead of paying attention in math class, was busy modifying uh, games that were broken <laughs> from the like the place Tech where you could download games for your TI-89. Uh, nice. And that's also how I got into C because the game got too big and it couldn't fit into memory. And the TI chess team, ticked actually figured out how to port GCC, which was a big deal back then because the middle layers weren't portable. So for a while, we all of your standard library was actually compiled to hex. And then it was linked as a hex array because it could do dead variable elimination, but it couldn't do dead code elimination. And so that way, you could call a function as an array of hex bytes, and it would only include it if you used it. But if you did as functions, it wouldn't work and would have taken too much space. And that's also how I learned how to do grayscale graphics, because there was grayscale support in the T89. I find it funny that you're not the only one who started off programming calculators instead of paying attention to math class. That was, that, that was my roots as well. <laughs> no, I, I was very weird in math class, because while doing that, then all of a sudden, they got to logarithms, and I like I was excited, like, oh, logarithms, those are so cool. And everyone else just looked at me like I was a huge weirdo. I think that's actually a fairly common thread, the whole TI calculator approach of, of getting started with programming. But this also makes it seem like you've been interested and in, focused on like compilers for a very long time before Lumen. So now I'm like, when did you get into compilers and this low-level stuff? Was that straight out of calculator school? So this was freshman year of high school, and I am now 35. So this was before the T89s had USB interfaces. This was when, like, the the like TI wouldn't actually release the signing key for Flash apps. So like Flash memory, not not you know like the Adobe thing, and so. It was, you could only go up to 2K even with the assembly that they gave you. Or what the TIHS Club figured out was that the memory protection for the signing key was actually restricted to the first 64K of memory. And if you had 64K of the memory, the protection didn't work, but the addresses just rolled over. So you actually worked in like the address space of plus 
a plus 64K above it. And then all of a sudden you could fill the 464K of memory. So I made like a tile-based game engine sort of like Link's Awakening uses. It didn't look like that. There was actually Link Awakening port in Z80 assembly for the TI-83s, but mine was a new engine. It's actually still sitting there. It's not the latest version though. For some reason, the website lost the later versions, but there's a version sitting there. It's called Twilight Shadows and it existed way before Twilight existed, so it's not related to that at all. I love that you needed yeah, this to clarify that. This is fantastic. Ostensibly, you also started with some higher level languages at some point, because as far as I know, you're involved in Elixir and the Beam. Right. Uh, so, so how did that happen? So after the the C, I did a little bit of PHP because, like, I one of my friends set up like Windows networks for people like local businesses in our hometown. And like, he also wanted to set up their websites and his customers were very cost conscious. So they wouldn't pay for the Perl host because the Perl hosts back then, there was no virtual hosting. So it was like, if, if you gave them Perl, you could potentially mess with the other tenants on the same box. So the PHP ones didn't have to have the same like OS level permissions. So they paid for the PHP one. So I did like PHP to do like photo carousels when that was like a huge deal to be able to do. Like it wasn't a thing you could do front end back then. You know, this was back when you could download slow enough that you could see the the JPEG solely fill in the interlaced lines. While also doing that, I was doing ActionScript in Flash. And this was when it was still Macromedia Flash, like before Adobe bought it. And then eventually they bought it. So like I, I did that and did animation. Like I did a like 15 minute long animation in Flash for like a French language project where we had to like speak in French for the whole movie. We did animate instead. With Flash, I also tried to make a compositing image compositing app for a local funeral home because at the time, like it was all just like blueprint style for like on the gravestone with like the, the engraving was it's just black and white. So there's no color. There was no like showing the actual like selection of what color granite you had. And it was in Flash, which was fine. But then it was like, I couldn't actually access the disk because there was no Adobe Air back then, you know? So like I said, Macromedia owned it. So then in like, this was freshman year of college. I was in my first Java course. So I quickly read through the entire Java book and converted the app from ActionScript to Java. And that was like using NetBeans and I think I used Eclipse for a while. After that, I got into Python because I ran Gentoo. And from Python, I, I was doing Python at Cray, the supercomputing company, as like my like a job after college. And there they sort of use the OpenSUSE build service, which used Python for like the command line tools, but they used Ruby and Rails for the front end. But then like the back end that was running all the actual builds was Perl. So then I learned a little bit of Perl and Ruby at the same time. Still hate Perl. Their code base sucked. Like having Perl names with initialisms from people that are initializing German words is, is really hard to follow. So then after that, like I was living pretty far away from where Cray actually was located when I moved in with my wife when we were just dating. And then they made me stop commuting because they 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 fired one of my colleagues. And then like not my manager, but the manager's manager, who was always on business trips, was like there in the office and couldn't find me, even though my manager knew I wasn't there. And he's like, No more working from home some days. You gotta come in every day. And that's like a 90 minute commute each way. And which I Sure, people in California like whatever, but like for Minnesota, that was a big deal. So then we moved down to Austin. I got a full Ruby on Rails job, and there I was really good at Ruby on Rails because 
my boss introduced me to RubyMine. And so I was able to dive into the code with the like go to definition. So I got really good at understanding the internals of Ruby and Rails. So like I've always sort of been that way of like understanding the internals. Like when I did Python, I did Pyrex for writing like extensions because I used that in college to do like a gene expression thing as my thesis. So not not like not like a master's or PhD thesis, but the honors program at Minnesota has you have, you have to write a thesis. So I've always done more low-level stuff. I guess I always think of how does stuff work in high language of like, okay, someone in C has to be doing this with a struct somewhere. It can't be that magical. And then I was doing Ruby on Rails and then I went to, you know, Jim Freeze was doing the Lone Star Ruby stuff and Dave Thomas talked about Elixir. And I'm like, oh, I switched to this because at the time I was at Rapid7, the security company who owns Metasploit Framework. And we were having problems with threading in Ruby and MRI and I was like, well, this seems like a much better approach. And so that's how I, I flipped over to doing Elixir, trying to convince them to do it. Unfortunately, my boss at the time was much more into Go. And I couldn't convince them by the time both of us left that they should use Elixir. It turned out after I left, they actually hired an Erlang person to do web services anyway. So Erlang Elixir still went out, even if I wasn't there for it. That's quite yeah. a ride. There's so much there that I want to dig into. I think definitely want to talk about Go versus Elixir in your opinion, but I'll put a pin in that for now because I thought it was so interesting what you said that you felt that you could really be super productive in Ruby, that you got good at it because you were introduced to RubyMine and you could look at the internals. And that actually reminded me, speaking of Go, about how I felt when I started writing Go and started using VS Code and being able to kind of do exactly you said, the Go to definition. And that's not something that I had ever really reached for before in Ruby and Elixir, not because, you know, I wasn't curious about how it worked under the hood. I think have that similar desire to like want to know how something works. But I felt in in Ruby and Elixir that it was so much easier just to get your hands dirty with it. I could open up a console, I could open up IEX or Pi or whatever and and kind of pry under the hood in that way or just try out so many different kinds of things that you would start to Grok in that sense, how it worked by being able to actually manipulate your code and, and tweak it in little ways. And that was something that really frustrated me, frustrates me to this day about Go like that. I feel like my hands are tied in terms of you don't have that same ability to play with it as easily, but then having the go-to definition and being able to look under hood, the hood was like the only way, really the only entry point into understanding what was going on and how things worked but maybe that's something that I should do more with Ruby and Elixir anyway. Look under the hood as a matter of course and build, have that kind of built into the tooling. Yeah, for, for VS Code, you'll have to install more than just the Elixir language plugin because I know after I added decompilation and like showing and uh, decompiling the Beam to what I call Beam Assembly, which is now confusing because the Beam JIT team called their thing Beam Assembly too. Someone did like a separate plugin to also do that in VS Code. And that'll help you for when you drop into the Erlang bits of the source. Because I don't, the Elixir language server, of course, won't go into the Erlang code for mm -hmm. the actual Elixir stuff, I don't think. It may also do the reversing now. Someone may have added it. We're like, it's Erlang code, but it shows you it as Elixir. Yeah, I definitely want to play around with that more, whereas I haven't really yet. But on that topic of how you were trying to you know, convince your old employer, leave go and, and replace it with Elixir. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. Why Why did you want them to make that change? Well, they weren't using Go either. It was It was more mm -hmm. my my boss, who was like a manager who was desperately trying to still be able to, to have time to do engineering, wanted to use Go. And my argument was he doesn't actually have time to program, so it didn't matter. 
what he wanted to do. The rest of us were going to have to do it. And, and also at the, at the time, because it was really enough in the elixir, it was like, oh, this looks like Ruby. It'll be an easy transition. You know, before everyone that came from Ruby realized we need to stop saying that, you know, because like the syntax looks similar, but everything else about it is different. So I don't think about it as Ruby. And that, that was the, the main gist of it was that. But the, the biggest po- problem with that would have been that with Metasploit Framework, it's open source contributors. So like we can't just switch the language. At the time, it was 11 years old and then like up to 15 by the end of it. And so like it is a very old project with a long history. And the reason why it's Ruby is mostly for because HDMore didn't want to be in Python originally. And then like, because like a lot of people do proof of concept codes for security exploits in Python because it's very easy with the bears included Python started library to like be able to set up an HTTP server because it like just ships in their standard library. But Metasploit is Ruby instead. So it's not, it's purposely not as portable to port your, your proof co- of concepts into Metasploit framework, but it makes it much easier to mix payloads and actual exploit code together. It just doesn't scale very well because it's on MRI. Like in that time, I also tried to get everything to build with JRuby and with Rubinius and like JRuby, like at the time, like adding code coverage made the builds 10 times slower. So like that was weird, weirded me out because we need code coverage because that was part of what I did was like, I, I don't write exploits. I write, like I made the software work well, which is always funny when people on LinkedIn try to hit me up for like, oh, you work in Metasploit Framework. Here, come and do these exploit things. I'm like, that's not what I did. I made the software better. I didn't make it more exploity. Like I didn't do the security part. I did the software engineering part. Mostly, I would say with Go, the thing that bugs me is since I have a since I've used Java, and like I understand how generics work, it annoys me that the Go core team does not expose the generics they use to program Go to the wider community. Like it, it bugs me that they don't have a trust in the community to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. Back when I was looking for a, a new language, I was really looking for something that had like concurrency as a first class citizen. And I read a book on Go and a book on on Elixir. And the concurrency model in Elixir really stuck with me versus the one in Go. I found that with CSP, you had more ways to shoot yourself in the foot. And that's kind of what led me more towards uh, the Beam and the Actor model. But it's interesting that you bring up uh, generics. I didn't realize that they use them under the hood, but don't expose them. Russ also has the uh, channel thing. But now that they have async and await, people probably use it less. But it, it is there and it was used for a long time. That's still part of the certain library. But you get more guarantees with Rust's borrowing system as opposed to Go's kind of, you're just passing the channel around, right? I mean, the the channel is still like two ends of a pipe. So that part's not different. Like how the channel is managed, I don't think would change that differently. Obviously, when you're on one side of the channel, you have more guarantees. But the like how the channel is being passed, I don't think is different. Okay. And and Rust doesn't have Go routines. So like you can't spawn a code routine until it has the async and wait stuff as fast. It would have to have a executor more like how Java did where it would spawn threads and you'd be like the thread pool would be this big and so on. But now with async and wait, it's different because the compiler is actually uh, generating a, a struct that allows for resuming. Gotcha. Is that a recent version in Rust? I, I don't I haven't done much Rust there. Uh, I usually just follow the change log just it's to see what's stabilized going on. within the last year. I can't remember how long async and wait has been on nightly. Cause like I I read blog posts about Rust when it first came out, but I didn't intensely start writing it until for Lumen. So that's only been like February of last year. Gotcha. And I, I just I just know the details because we're always on nightly to ride the edge of features that Paul says we need to like do stuff, which which is true. Like there we wouldn't be able to 
you we wouldn't be able to manage the memory as well as we could if we weren't on nightly because they didn't rust and expose like having your own allocator separate from like malloc yet it's only on nightly that we can do that and it might always be so like there's rust is very big on like very old rust code should compile even on new versions of rust like that's what they mean by stable and so there are certain things where Rust wants the ability to optimize it and change it that will never stabilize, but this Alex stuff is supposed to stabilize soon. They've just changed it like five times over the lifetime of Lumen, which has you know, been less than two years because they're iterating on it a lot. Gosh, on the topic of Lumen, for those unfamiliar with the project, you know, what are some of the primary use cases that it enables and at a high level, what, what is Lumen? Lumen is a head-of-time compiler for... Erlang or like anything that can be turned into Erlang or like Erlang abstract form. So that means, you know, you because of Jose's introduction of the DBGI chunk, every language on the beam has to support converting to like every other language in theory. The biggest one is that like an Elixir debug I chunk has the quoted Elixir form, but it also has a module that can convert that to Erlang AST. So like when you do IXPry, what's actually happening is you're actually creating Erlang source and then the compile module that Erlang would use natively is compiling that back into a modified um, Beam module that's being loaded back up. And so we can do the we do the same thing where like you could take the Elixir source and spit out Erlang or take direct Erlang source and then compile that ahead of time and not into a beam because obviously the there is compilation happening with Elixir and Erlang. What we mean is like it is not a VM with bytecode files. There are no beam files anymore. And the reason for this is mostly size and so that we can optimize across the whole program. Because if you have beam files, you have to allow for reloading, which means you can't really do inlining cross modules unless you you know, do the compile inline, which wouldn't necessarily be efficient. It would make very bloated beam fi- uh, bytecode files. Also, beam files just have to include a lot more data because of how the chunks are laid out than they would if you just would compile straight to the native machine's assembly. And the reason for this is the different targets we want. So for like actual native, we could do true embedded, like on an ESP32. So not, not the way that nerves is embedded where it still has an OS, where like that's just a very tiny PC. Like I, I've worked on actual embedded systems. Like the TA89 is an actual embedded system where like you can reboot it to fix everything. And like, or like the medical hardware I worked at at Medtronic in college during my internships, like that's true embedded hardware. You know, it has a, a, a DSP and like a PIC chip. So that sort of thing. The other thing, uh, so like that was sort of like Paul's reason for wanting it. Uh, Paul Schoenfelder, who's one of the other people on the core team, and was the the first one on the the team actually working on it before I was. And then the other targets are WASM. That's why Brian Cutterella of Docker wants it, is so that we can put the beam into web browsers. And the reason why we do WASM and not like Brian Joseph's Elixir script is we just can't fit it and get the same performance without going down to WASM. And then the other target, which is something that I thought of because of helping um, my wife with like her enterprise job stuff is that we can, we can compete where like go and Rust go 
because we'll be a single binary. And this is more than like the nerve teams bakeware where like it has to unpack it, where like it literally be one file and it would never try to unpack to like a temp directory or something. So we're much like much more likely that we can fit into places where like Dockyard has experienced this where like Elixir won't go in because like they're not going to change their deploy system for a new language. And if you can't fit into the the shape hole that the enterprise has, you're not going to get a new language in there, which means we can't show off how great Elixir is because we can't fit through one of their tools. But almost every one of these deploy pipelines, usually, even if they're like, oh, we only deploy to the JVM, there'll be like some weird caveat where like, well, sometimes we have to deploy a bash script or sometimes we have to deploy the C binary. So we also can support pushing a single file where we don't care what it is, it just runs itself which means we can fit in that hole if we can be a single file for the whole binary. I actually had a use case for that this week, but I had to use Rust. Yeah, Rust is good. I mean, Lumen's built on Rust. Like, I can't, I can't knock it for that. It, it does seem that most people that try to use like the, the web frameworks for Rust, it's tricky because they're all switching over to the future things. So like, it's not, there's not as much help for it right now. I always feel that the Go and the Rust stuff feels too low level. I guess I, but I'm kind of used to like the Ruby level, which means the Phoenix level is feels right to me. Maybe I'd get more used to it if I had done um, Sinatra more. So like the way the the Go and the Rust ones, the more low level would feel at more like the right level of abstraction. Yeah, I always felt like Jin, like I had to do too much work in Jin to get like an actual product or project started. It kind of felt like Express, but as opposed to JavaScript, it was Go. So. I definitely agree there that uh, I like all the conveniences that you know, Nix, Nix Phoenix new project generates for me. Yeah, I feel like if you're looking for like abstractions or if you're looking for a framework, whether it's for your web app or whatever, like Go doesn't have it for you. It's aggressively unopinionated. And that's why some people love it, right? Like very low level. I just do exactly what I need and no more. But I am also of the group of wanting wanting that framework to do the Rails magic for me or whatever you want to call it. So for the people who haven't really dove into WASM or WebAssembly, could you give a brief overview of what WebAssembly is and what it's actually used for? Obviously, it's related to web browsers, but it, I know it's a lot more than that. Yeah, so WASM is short for WebAssembly, and that's because ASM, ASM is how assembly is abbreviated for most of like the actual x86 assembly stuff and like arm 64 which is ar64 also does says asm so uh, web assembly was there there was there are ways to trick the browsers into knowing the types of variables by like oring with zero so that it knows it it's an int that was called asmjs because it was a way to format your JavaScript in a way that like you would type hint to the browsers. And if I remember correctly, I think Luke Wagner from Mozilla actually came up with that. And then that was good. And like people did demos, like they did Unreal Engine, which is one of the, the game engines that a lot of games are built on. They did demos with that showing like, look, we can now have C and C++ games in the browser using ASM.js. And then from that, they were like, well, what if, instead of having to just use hints to make it faster, we just went all the way and actually had a typed encoding. And like a lot of stuff on the web, like how HTTP3 now is, is completely binary, it's not text-based. But WASM is like, well, let's do a binary, and then we can use 
because we can parse Barney way faster than we can parse text because we don't have to worry about spacing. We don't have to, you know, say that it can only be compressed. And so, but once you're in that way, you don't have to just, you can have it be a truly typed language and not just be like a typed version of JavaScript. So it's not, it's not just TypeScript. It's much more low level than that, more like a real assembly. But they also want to protect from security concerns. They didn't want this to be a huge security exploit because they, they want, what they want to do is what's called streaming compiling, where like you get the web assembly and you, you immediately start turning it into x86 assembly without having to worry about the assembly you're going to generate is going to exploit the browser and break the sandbox. And so what that means is that unlike a lot of assemblies, it's like block-based. There's like there's not arbitrary jumps. There's not arbitrary branching. Like everything is nested. There are actual like ifs, which is weird, and actual function bodies as opposed to just like a, a place where you jump into. Like normal assembly is you can jump in the middle of whatever and it does not matter. But that's also why there's so many exploits on native code. And WebAssembly didn't want that. And so it's much safer. And so that safety is also a reason why it's being potentially used in other places. Is like Red Hat and Intel are working on using WebAssembly to run on Enclave chips, which are like the, the chips where we where on modern computers we store our private keys. You know, they're not just sitting in a directory, they're actually on this chip. It's like the reason why when you like if you get your Mac back from Apple, you have to set everything up again. It's because that chip is secure and no one can get the data in. What you do is when you want something to sign with that key, it goes into that chip, it does the the, the crypto and then pops back out without you ever getting the actual key, without the you know secrets. And so Red Hat and Intel are working on where you would have a chip that could actually do more than just crypto and it would run WebAssembly. And that way you potentially could have you could trust the cloud more by having secure hardware because that, that sort of hardware can actually attest that it's not messed with. And so you could have a build farm with your very secret private you know, financial stock trading code and send it to the cloud and trust that like they can't see what it does or steal your intellectual property. And so like people are interested for that reason too of that it is a secure low-level language, like very low-level language. There's also a group called WASI that wants to use it as a basis of like interacting with systems, so outside the browser. And that is, you can almost think of that as like the new Java bytecode for that reason of like, it will be more, it would work everywhere. That's really cool. I, I didn't realize it had so many implications there. Maybe the, uh, the web prefix is a bit of a misnomer. Yeah, a lot of people say that, it, that work on it. The... The sandboxing is probably the biggest thing, and like that—that's like a big thing of that. It needs to be sandboxable because like Java isn't. I, I mean, that was—it's not as bad as as Flash has been, but there are problems with Java's security model. Why like a lot of sites don't use Java anymore is that some of the security mechanisms in Java, well, most of them are based around class loaders, like who who loaded the bytecode file from the disk. Like they have to, you can have more than one class loader and like they, the classes can't interact. But some of the Java stuff, at least it used to be that like the way you figured out that you were being called by someone that had permission to call you, like are you are you the code that Sun ships or Oracle now ships was based on like using like callers, which is the same way it works in JavaScript and be like, oh, that's a caller in my namespace. It's okay. But of course, if you had some function where like you passed in a um, 
a class to have a callback, you could mess with that chain and screw with the security context. So like Wasm knew it couldn't just be the same as Java bytecode. It had to be much more provably secure, which it is. There are academics working on that have worked on proofs that, you know, this thing in Wasm can't be exploited, that you can't escape. And so Wasm is able to validate that it's valid Wasm without like having to execute it. And then because of that, it knows that if you translate it to native assembly, it, it'll be fine. It'll be safe. That's very cool. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Didn't know it went quite that deep and I haven't really thought about the translation and how quickly you can do the translation from WASM to the native assembly or native machine instructions. And I guess that's really important if you want it to actually be anywhere near native. What specific use cases are you most excited about when it comes to Lumen and WebAssembly? Mostly the, the single binary. I would I, I want to be able to use it in more spots. Like just not having that pushback on, you know, the deployment story for Elixir would be nice. I, I think now it's it's kind of a false thing, but it just being able to say we can compete with Rust and Go and single binaries, because the the Go the single binary can still be competitive for like agents. And so like we're more likely to if we can have single binaries, we're more likely to people to like choose it for command line scripts. And like a lot I don't like I said, like I got exposed to Python because of command line scripts. Like being able to use a language on the command line means it's more likely that just random people will choose it as like the thing they write their command line stuff in. And that will help it spread out for more usages and make sure that we're not stuck just being webbish when we don't need to. Like eScripts have always existed. It's just so such a like having a tarball for a command line tool just feels heavy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think you have achieving a single binary for Elixir that's that's nice, tight and starts quickly would absolutely be be a brilliant addition because we already know Elixir and Erlang uh, really shines when there's a long running thing going on when you when the startup time doesn't matter and I think mixed tasks are fine for a lot of things but if you wanted to implement some some nice and tight uh, command line tooling I think there are there are definitely better choices than Elixir currently and I it would be interesting to see Lumen disrupt that a bit yeah, and you mentioned agents. That's interesting because it seems like our concurrency model fits building agents really, really well, like the typical sentry agent or whatever data dog agent. It seems like that would be a very good fit, but I never would have considered it without it being a binary. So diving a little bit deeper into Lumen, what are some of the challenges that you've come across with uh, actually putting together an alternative beam implementation? So the, the way that the team... It is set up. Paul Schoenfelder does like the compiler stuff with actual LLVM. I do the the runtime stuff, like how the runtime actually works once we have the the code compiled. And Hans um, does like the stuff before it gets handed to the compiler, so, 
so compilers always have stages. And so Hans's stuff, EIR, actually like does the actual parsing of Erlang source and then does some optimizations because it knows it's Erlang. And then the certain ones that like even MLIR wouldn't do in the like the LVM tool suite. And so for for my stuff, the hard stuff was some of it was just like, oh, Erlang works that way. I, I ended up opening some bugs where like the Erlang core team is like, no, that it's supposed to work that way. And I'm like, okay. I mean, the most annoying one, of course, is the bad art problem that Erlang has. So like our Lumen actually uses a Rust thing called anyhow to like add better error messages so that we can say like which value is different, but like just matching the bad art behavior and like iterating through it's been it's kind of annoying because like Erlang doesn't have a, a spec, it has tests, but anyone that's looked at like IntelliJ Elixir, like I I test a lot. And so like having every edge case of like this combination of arguments means that we have more tests than probably Erlang has about itself. And it's just like thinking through all the cases that could go wrong. The switch to prop test helped a lot, but prop test compile times suck. It's bad. A prop test is one of the property testing libraries for Rust. And it, it's just, it takes a long time, but it does find bugs, which is nice. And that, that's been the, the big thing, blocking us for WASM. So like when we did the first, so the one in, the one in September of 2019, so that was after me being on the project for only seven months, that demo we showed of Spawn Chain was me showing the, the runtime worked in WebAssembly, but we couldn't compile the code yet. And the big thing for that is, the WebAssembly community group that like makes the standard moves really slowly. And so just now we've finally like changed the spotlight of their t- attention to worry about the things we need to make Erlang fast with uh, with stack switching. And so next day six we can switch the the stack of execution to like, you know, the process is, is a different stack for each process. We can't do that in WebAssembly because of that security mechanism of like how everything is in, in nested blocks and not arbitrary jumps. So we can't we can't do like a go-to to switch to the other stack. We can't actually see and manipulate the stack on WebAssembly for security reasons. If you can mess with the stack, you can do a lot of cool exploits. So like it's browsers can't do that, so WebAssembly can't do that. And so having a formal definition of stack switching is something we need. So it's it's been very slow getting the wheels of progress to turn on that of so that we can actually target WebAssembly where we, we want. So like obviously we can run Erlang processes in the browser because I showed that, but it'd be kind of silly to code gen code the way I had to write it. I had to port the Elixir code to Rust to make it work in the browser because we end up having to all the Erlang code has to be in a in a stack that we actually store on the heap. So it's more the individual like function bodies might be compiled code, but like how they call between each other is more like an interpreter where it keeps going back to a loop. And so like that's not really an efficient way to run it. Now now mind you, it was so very fast as we we sh- as I showed in the graphs in that talk. But it's just it's not what we want. So we're we've been holding off on targeting WebAssembly with the compiler until we get the WebAssembly committee to support the things we want. And that, that was one of the reasons why we're on the WebAssembly committee from the beginning is we want to make sure that they didn't just focus on imperative languages. So like WebAssembly and SMJS, like I said, Unreal Engine cares about C and, 
and um, C++. And now it cares about Rust. But if you think about those, those are all very similar languages. And there are, there are C++-specific features. So like there is a feature called tables in WebAssembly that you can be like, oh, that is literally there for the, the V tables that C++ needs to do method dispatch. And so like we want to be there early so we could be like, that feature is there so that Erlang works without shipping a giant massive runtime. Because if if most language is if most imperative languages are supported, or most like O languages are supported, but the only way to get functional languages supported is to like ship the entire runtime in VM for like Scheme or Lisp or Erlang, we're not going to be competitive in the end when everyone is on WebAssembly because we're going to have to ship more code and people will be like, I'm not going to do it. And so we we need the actual WebAssembly standard to support features we need so we don't have to ship as much code. That's super interesting. I haven't thought about that aspect so much. Uh, I I know there are, have been a lot of these projects like, let's say, Python JS, which is like, okay, we have a huge JS library for running Python. Yeah, it's super Python. big. Yeah, that sort of thing. And hopefully that can be replaced with something like Wasm. And I, I'm sure they've made a lot of progress in that regard because Python is a traditional OOP language implemented in C, as far as I know. The, the one are thing there that made... other functional languages, like the stakeholders in functional languages that are involved in the working group? Or are you fighting the good fight for functional programming on your own? We're the loudest, I would say. So the, the, the thing is like the, the academics will come up with like, they... They use other languages as examples, but like they don't represent like the people porting that language to the group. So it's kind of we're like a functional people where we can say we actually need this and like give it a specific example. So like sometimes they'll they'll use C sharp as an example, but like we know the team Blazor that does it and Blazor doesn't speak up. So it's weird when the academics talk about like they show an example code of like the language needs this and it's not the actual language team asking for it. The other one we know about is there's a Haskell port called it's like something like Asterix or Asterius or something like that. I forget the exact ending of the name. But they they are already targeting WASM and but they're they're not on top of LLVM the way we are. I think they're directly generating WebAssembly as part of like a port of, a fork of GHC, which is like the big Haskell compiler. Yeah, that one. Yeah, so Asterius. Yeah, and we, we actually did interesting. We yeah. we with them actually applied to get a grant from the EU to like work on WebAssembly. And like, unfortunately the committee reviewing it thought WebAssembly was just going to be like another Java or Flash where like it would, it's just another bytecode for the web that everyone's supposed to use. What does it matter? And it, it just seemed like the review committee didn't realize that the security guarantees made it different. So unfortunately we didn't get the grant. That's unfortunate. Have you reached out to other functional programming like communities or foundations to see what their interests are for for WebAssembly, because that it seems like if if you're already fighting the good fight and uh, being the loud uh, functional programming crew in WebAssembly, maybe things will go smoother if you're backed by a few other few other languages. That like down the road, we're gonna need this too. I don't think we've done a survey recently. When we first started, like in that that the first six months, we did like look. For it, but everyone seemed to be like a toy language. The Asterius is like the only like industry group, you know, because they're they have a, a company that's doing it. The I think that 
the Twig uh, people and like the, the way that Dockyard's helping with Lumen development. But we didn't find anyone else doing that for other languages. I don't know. I don't think we bothered the Closure people. But of course, the Closure people are probably like, we want to be on top of JVM. And right now, I don't know if JVM has a plan. Obviously, it's a little bit weird of like, so I know that there there's literally people from like that work on Kotlin from JetBrains that have talked about it. But because Kotlin has a, a JS target that like isn't on top of the JVM. So they're not they're not pointing the JVM to support Kotlin. They they have a different backend. It's part of their uh, a feature in Kotlin called multi-platform. Because they Kotlin can also compile direct to native. So like I think it generates C code and then does it or something. So Kotlin could maybe be because it has more functional features than Java does. But other than that, I haven't heard people speak up. And that's one of the weird things about the WebAssembly community group is that like anyone can sign up and they just have to declare whether they're representing their employer or they're independent. So like that's what me and Paul are is like you'll see we're signed up as independent but like working for Dockyard. Paul didn't change it since he, he got a new job. I'm not even sure we can, but the other ones don't there's not really a way to search easily through all those. Like you can see them, but to like find everyone that's represented. But no one has really talked about other languages. And so it's mostly us making sure that that dynamics don't target what they, how they think it works. Because sometimes it's it's the same way how when we don't know a language, we, we talk about how we think it works. But they're, of course, trying to prove academically that it is sound for that use case, but they don't actually use the language or understand how it's implemented. And so potentially they're going to they're gonna, like eliminate a behavior that is what is actually needed. So it's not really... I mean, OCaml is like a multi-paradigm language. So like OCaml, multi-core OCaml is starting to speak up for the stack switching stuff because they've actually have an implementation that is using a thing called algebraic effect handlers. And algebraic effect handlers are a way of everything where we mess with control flow that isn't like ifs. So like exception handling, async await, Coroutines, which would cover coroutines and, and Erlang processes, all that stuff can be done with a thing called algebraic effect handlers. Where if you, the easiest way to think about it is like we all know most languages now do exception handling with like a try catch block. And so what effect handlers do instead is like it's a try handle, and then you can say what type of effect and whether at the end of the handle block you resume in the stack frame you were in or it like wipes it out is something you choose. And because of that, and the fact that uh, it allows you to suspend state, means that you can do all those things like generators. Everything that like JavaScript has had to have a special feature for would just become effect handlers. And so since multi-core OCaml is like, that is going to be how OCaml, which, which is used. Like OCaml is one of those languages that finance companies like secretly use to do their, their trading super fast. Because um, it's a very safe language, but it, it compiles to a very fast execution. Since that will be their approach to both concurrency and parallelism, we know it works. And so we can trust that like effect handlers can be in something besides Haskell. And the reason that it's necessary is because Haskell is lazily evaluated. So a lot of times the strategies it picks doesn't work for uh, what's called strict evaluation, where like it evaluates immediately, which is like what we're in with Elixir and Erlang and OCaml. And so hopefully that'll work well and it won't 
The only downside I might have is that if we don't literally have an async and await keyword, it might bloat the size. So, you know, it might take a while. So, like, the other thing we have to worry about is that exception handling has been talked about for, like, three years now. And they keep finding weird edge cases where they have to change the design because, like, like certain languages can find the catch block as a separate search from, like, destroying the stack frames. And they can potentially have side effects. So, like, you need to have them be separate phases. And so, like, the, the way that they implement exception handling now for, like, most sane languages, like C++, has to not, has to be portable because the other big thing, like, WebAssembly is a W3C thing, which is the World Wide Web Consortium. And the biggest thing about that is the statement, don't break the web. As soon as enough people have code on the web for it, it cannot be broken by a change we do later. And so it is very important that like everyone thinks through the implications, which most of the academic people are, and find back and forth. But it's super frustrating because like actual customers want these features. Like like right now, I guess there's a web version of AutoCAD, but like it can't have C exceptions. And so the way they get around it is is shelling out to JavaScript and have it throw an exception into pop through WebAssembly instead, which is super inefficient. Like, you know, because there's a, a call overhead on both Chrome and Firefox um, to like jumping back into JavaScript from WebAssembly or vice versa. And so I'm I'm a little bit worried about how long stack switching will take, but we'll we'll see. Hopefully it won't take that long. This is wild. Just deep in working group politics. But but at the same time, like if we hadn't been involved now, it may have never been been a thing that they talked about. Because like talking again about like the mental model people have is that I just in passing, I mentioned in our in our demo of the sponsoring runtime, I'm like, oh, we're running sixty four thousand processes in the browser. And like no one realized that's what Erlang can do. And so they're modeling in their head of like, oh, it's like go routines or it's like green threads. You don't do a lot of them because they're kind of shitty. And so then it changes everyone's mind of like, oh, they need to be really well performing. And so if we hadn't, if we hadn't been on the t- on the WebAssembly community group this whole time, they would have been maybe thinking about, oh, Erlang is a thing, but they wouldn't have thought of it as a use case for this. So like the use case for stack switching or at least the generalization of effect handlers, is Chrome wants async and await in WebAssembly so that they can more transparently port JavaScript directly to WebAssembly and not have to like manually do the async awaitness. But if we weren't there representing us, like we wouldn't be able to do green threading as easily because most other languages that have green threading, they kind of shun green threading because it's not great. But it's great for us. Like We don't have a problem with it. They perform really well. And we want them to stay that way in the web. Yeah, that's that's an interesting case. I don't think most languages are like, yeah, 65,000 threads or 65,000 processes or Go routines or whatever they want to call it. But that's that's supposed to be sort of normal for the beam. I've been seeing a lot of use cases for WASM show up in, in fairly disparate situations. Like I recently saw things about like replacing Docker images with wasm for for like kubernetes and i know cloudflare has their workers that are that run wasm on the edge at the very close to your users via cdn uh, 
basically as a backend language. They support Rust, they support Node.js, and they support anything that compiles to WASM ostensibly. And then I've seen that there are microcontrollers that will that will work with WASM. Do you think WASM will be spreading into all the things, much like JavaScript has spread into all the things, but maybe with more success, since it can do more and be tighter? Maybe. I'm a little bit worried about actual hardware that's made for it, because it's still considered a, an MVP and stuff keeps adding. So like, if, if a chip is built too soon and it's not field programmable gate array, it will get stuck and potentially not be able to support what we need. So there's that issue. And obviously, one of the, the, the big problems would be, like, a lot of the edge computing, I don't, I don't know if having Erlang there would be a benefit because, like, they're not long-running. Like, the whole point is, like, it's, it's Lambda where it's short-lived. And so it could do it just so that you can write in. So, like, it, it would be efficient for the binary matching syntax, probably. Um, but other than that, like we won't get the benefit of of doing the green threading and stack switching because they don't expect it to live a long time. Like they purposely want it to die and start and die really fast. So like the, the Cloudflare stuff, the way it works is I remember correctly, they they talked about it like it gets up right to the point of running the WASM code and like stays resident in the memory. So they keep forking the process off. And so it's super rapid startup, like faster than a Docker container even is. But it also, they, they assume that they're going to run it and shut it down. So like the whole thing of having multiple processes isn't as much unless you were somehow interacting with like the, the APIs that the, the CDN uses. And so you want to do multiple dispatch and you could do that better than doing the libuv event loop in like Node. So maybe it would still be helpful there. But otherwise, it's mostly sequential code. And it's mostly like calculating like how to resize images or or like choosing whether something should be cached based on some metadata. So probably the binary pattern matching would be our biggest win there and not the multi-process necessarily. But I I haven't done enough CDN stuff to be like, oh yeah, they async all the time. Of course it's better with more processes. I know at least that you can basically build your application in there uh, as long as you keep it keep it nice enough and uh as you said, they want to shut it down fairly quickly, but you can run code after the response has been sent and that sort of thing for logging, for analytics, all sorts of, of use cases. So, uh, but for my purposes, I would be like, yeah, uh, I, I just want to write it in Elixir if I can. Um, but for the, for the Kubernetes and Docker sort of use case, I think, then we're talking about more long-running things. And then I think it's similar to what you were saying about the static binary and single binary for for the enterprise in that it's just the deployment story, like what's convenient. I would I think definitely we... think for security that the WASM, running WASM code would be safer than Docker. Because, I mean, everyone that starts Docker is always confused when Docker warns you it's not a security mechanism. Like, it's not. <laughs> and while the WASM code is proved to be safe, the only way to mess it up is when if the embedder like granted too many host um, like system calls, then it could be broken, obviously. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, 
and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. I almost hate to cut off any of this conversation because I feel like we're getting a lot of inside scoops and going really deep here, but we sadly are running to the end of our episode. So I think this might be a good time to wrap up with some picks. I'm going to round robin around our hosts and our guests. And if anybody has any recommendations to share, as always, doesn't have to be Elixir related or even programming related. Any and all suggestions for our listeners. Uh, let's start with you, Josh. I'll make it very easy. I've got, I've got nothing. Fair enough. Thanks for your honesty. Anything from you, Lars? Sure. To keep on the theme, I found an episode of Software Sessions, which is apparently a Rust podcast. I couldn't tell. Very, it was very interesting, and it covered WASM and WASI and all a lot of WebAssembly concepts very well. And it got into it got into the idea of it centered around the project Crosslet, which is working on this idea of running rather than starting Docker containers, you start kubelets that are running WASM and WASI and WASC. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of WAS going on, but it, it was a super clean rundown of, of what WebAssembly is and it's some interesting use cases. So I thought that was interesting. And now you have even more context from Luke here. So I think uh, you might want to listen to that and see where what you think about the future of WebAssembly. Thanks, Lars. Very topical. Alex, any picks for us? Yeah, sure. Just just one for today. The uh, Ecto 3.5, I think, second release candidate is out. And I'm really excited about Ecto enums and Ecto parameterized types. So those will be those will be fun to play with. And uh, I could probably remove a dependency on a lot of my projects for uh, enums now, which is nice. That's a first-class thing in Ecto. Uh, Mike Binns of Docker actually worked on that. Oh, well, thank him for me. I feel like my picks now are going to be like future picks because I feel like I'm going to be looking out for some blog posts from you, Alex, on some of these new Ecto editions. I have a feeling those will be forthcoming. Uh, I don't think I have any picks for y'all this time, so I'm just going to hand it right over to you, Luke. And Luke, we've got lots and lots of links on Lumen to share, so we've got you covered there, I think. But if there's anything else you want to shout out to our listeners, by all means. I really like the Microbe TV podcast. So this week in virology, but they also have a bunch of other this weeks, this week in evolution and this week in microbiology. Like I said, I, I worked at Medtronic as an intern and I've always really liked biology. My, my handle is chronic death everywhere because I'm filled with autoimmune diseases. So I have type one diabetes, celiacs and hypothyroidism. And so like knowing the details of medicine have always interested me a lot. Plus, I don't know, if you're running a business and you're trying to compute how long do you have to like keep it going during the pandemic, like the actual virologists on the micro TV podcast will give you like realistic timelines and not puffed timelines that may be coming out of, you know, the vaccine developers or from the administration. So it's it's very helpful that way to know how long to plan because like with my compromised immune system, it's like planning how long do we have to homeschool my kid because he can't go play with kids because they might get me sick. And, you know, and how long do we have to not go on trips and that sort of stuff? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Also very topical and I'm sure very useful to our listeners. Actually, it occurs to me, I do have two picks on a less serious note. I might be too late for this pick 
depending on when this episode airs. But our listeners may know that ElixirConf EU is coming up uh, first week of October. Definitely check it out and consider getting a ticket if you have yet to do so. Certainly, you know, it depends on your time zones and all that. It's in CEST, which is six hours ahead from EST. That gives you like any kind of reference about whether or not you might be able to attend talks. If you enjoyed the original Purple Carpet, you'll get a reprise of it from myself and the fabulous Meryl Dakin. And there's just going to be a lot of great talks. I'm super excited to be giving a keynote and sort of updated, even more exciting version on some of the telemetry talks and writings I've done lately. So that's it for me from Elixir shoutouts. And then I also have a pick of a pair of sneakers. So recently moved to upstate New York and doing a lot of hiking. It's fall. It's beautiful. It's super nice. But as somebody with a lot of back problems, it's very hard to find a shoe that I can actually wear and walk around and tolerate. So I don't know if anybody's familiar with the, I think they're called Hoka's, like Hoka 1-1 running shoes. They now make like a hiking sneaker, which is waterproof and it's pretty sturdy, but it's super, super comfortable and feels like an actual like running shoe, which is like the only kind of shoe that I can actually wear. So I'll share a link to that if anybody's interested in some comfortable outdoor shoes. All right. I think that's all of our picks. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you to Luke. This was such an excellent opportunity to get to learn a little bit more about Lumen and some of your other projects. And uh, yeah, we hope to have you on sometime in the future. Sounds good. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.